0: Today's reading is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Last week we talked about the battle, the struggle against the flesh. And Paul now goes about discussing and pointing out what does this battle practically look like? And there's a huge list. So what we're going to do is work through that list a little slowly and examine some of those words, which I do think are significant for us when we especially consider this battle that rages before us all the time, every day, every moment. CS Lewis makes this point um, about the battle. He says this, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation, know how strong it is. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist as only C.S. Lewis can put it, right? Oh, so well. Sheltered people, they're the bad people. They are sheltered. How often we think that the sheltered person is the one who doesn't uh, give in to their badness. So, like Lewis, we have a fight ahead. And for these next few weeks, we're going to be looking very practically with detail at what this fight looks like. And for this week, I'll be focusing specifically on sexual immorality from Galatians 5.19. We'll look at, one, fighting obvious flesh, and then two, fighting sexual morality. Look at what Paul writes in verse 19 regarding fighting obvious flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident or obvious, that is to say that We will know sin and depravity when we see it. It won't be confusing to us. It'll be just so stark. It's right out there. This past week, I saw a video of this woman at an airport attacking an airline ticketing attendant. And she was at the baggage counter because she was she had been placed on a no fly list for whatever reason. And obviously she was very furious. And so she was so angry. If you've ever seen one of those um, stands, they have two stands and multiple stands and there are straps and sort of forms lines. She, she, yesterday actually at the City Impact event, I actually had to pick up one of those things. They're actually pretty heavy because it's weighted on the bottom. She picked up one of those straps and she went past the barrier to the ticketing counter where the keyboard is and started throwing the keyboard at the bag, uh, the ticketing agent and then picked up that stand and started attacking her. Now, you know, that happens. <laughs> there's road rage and there's air rage, right? And what was startling about that was not actually her doing that, but what was startling was watching her two children that were right by her side. One was a little girl. This little girl was screaming with, and crying with all of her might no mommy don't do that I don't want you to go to jail and she was bawling and it was so striking to see her doing that while her mom is raging at this ticketing agent really gut-wrenching to see this little girl pleading with her mother not to do that so it was evident that that depravity had revealed so many real consequences to this woman's family what was also interesting was the second child, the older son, he had literally the opposite reaction. In his face, you just see it. It was just empty, emotionless. It didn't phase him what his mother was doing. It was almost as if he was resigned to his mother's behavior. And I think this illustration reveals essentially the two sides of the obviousness of the flesh of depravity. The first is that we're created in God's image. As image bearers of God, as we see in Genesis 1:26 and 27, we have a conscience that is bestowed upon us by God, and therefore, we get a sense of moral right and wrong based on the fact that we are created in this image. Paul makes it so clear for us in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 that all human beings know when they are turning from God for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No one has an excuse to say, I didn't know that was wrong. When you lift up something and are about to hit someone, you can't say, I didn't know. We can't plead the fifth to God. We can't plead ignorance to God, according to Paul. And so just like that little girl who saw what her mother was doing and everything internally within her was shouting out for her mother to stop. Because human beings know that this is wrong, not just against the law of man, but really against the law of God. That's what Paul says are the evident works of the flesh. But what about the many who you might say are unfazed by conscience. Many seem to not see what God has shown them, according to Paul. Is Paul then misunderstanding human nature in Romans 1, 19 through 20? We actually get Paul's answer, just in case we go down that road to the previous verse in Romans 1, 18, and listen to what Paul says right before 19 and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Unrighteousness suppresses truth and the conscience. Sin, the works of the flesh, it deadens the heart. It deadens the conscience. Like the little boy who is older, who has probably seen his mother act this way, more often than not, not just towards others, but perhaps towards his, himself and his sister, his heart has become so deadened that he sees this outrageous act, and he's unfazed by it. Put it to put it this way, it's the heart is slowly deadened to sin, and it impacts the soul dramatically. Paul's point is that the more we give in to our sin and do not fight and battle the flesh, the more our conscience and our soul is deadened to the Lord and the less we fight. It really is cyclical in that way. We don't believe, we don't fight. We don't fight, we become deadened. We become deadened, we don't fight. We don't fight, we don't believe. And slowly but surely sin, we, we succumb to it. We give in to it. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, that such a person, he describes this person this way. They have a seared conscience. This is a time for barbecue. A lot of people are grilling. And for those of you who perhaps are novices at barbecuing, you leave that meat on too long and it overcooks, right? And there's nothing worse than a really good piece of meat that is grilled to burnt You know with that burnt taste on it it's a terrible taste but here's the thing if you overcook meat and burn it to a crisp and you look at it and then you say let me burn let me cook it another 10 more minutes whether you eat it at that point or another 10 minutes later or 20 minutes later it becomes so seared that actually the taste doesn't change it's just taste burnt it's terrible and regardless of how good the meat, whether it's wagyu beef or rotten flesh, if you burn it to a crisp, it tastes the same. Burnt tastes burnt. And That's essentially Paul's point here is that when we do not battle, when we yield to our sin, when we simply say, I'm not going to fight anymore because it's too hard, so therefore we give up. Our hearts become seared. Our conscience becomes seared to the point that we slowly but surely suppress the truth. And that's essentially the starting point of the very essential lie that Adam was told in the garden by Satan. Did God really say, or as Jesus in the desert where Satan is trying to say, turn this stone to bread. That is, it's only one piece of bread. It makes no difference. Did God really say this? Don't listen to God. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change your life. He's trying to rob you of pleasure. Instead, enjoy, experience. It's always one look, one glance, one click. It's just one click. It's just one image. You're reading a a news feed of something, and suddenly an image pops up. It's a small image. It's perhaps someone scantily dressed. Doesn't mean that much, but it's just one image. And it's on a new site. It must be good. It must be okay. Maybe you're just thinking, I'm just being friendly. I'm not flirting. They won't take it that way. Our hearts are so prone to deceive ourselves. The works of the flesh are evident. They are obvious. They're always obvious to everybody else, but to ourselves, we want to hide it. And we want to believe that it doesn't make an impact. It's just one sin. It's a small sin. We always try to minimize it to the most that we can. But you see, one sin opens the door to the vast amount of sins. Sin is that powerful. It wedges its way in. We, early on, we, we faced vermin. So we had a rat problem here. And then we had a cockroach problem. And you just think, it's just one cockroach, but you know, where there's one, there's many more. And then we had ants, it's just one ant. Where there's one ant, there's many more. I tell you, far worse than rats, cockroaches, ants, is sin. Where there's one, there's many more. So that's sort of the essence. We have to get to the idea that sin is obvious. It's evidence, it's out there. And we can't just simply think that doesn't impact me. It does, every single person, every Christian is impacted by sin. Now, what are we going to do about it? That's sort of the point of Paul's list. Here's the bunch of sins. And this is very, very common to the New Testament, not necessarily to Greek literature, but to the New Testament are these lists. And so for Paul, it's like saying, get ready, here's the flood of things. We'll talk eventually about the fruit of the spirit, which is sort of the counteracting agent you might say of this poison. but at this point we're talking about these poisons and in verse 19 we see this fight of the flesh against sexual morality, uh, of sexual immorality and we need to fight it we need to battle it. And look at verse 19. now the works of the flesh are evident, self uh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. First and foremost, remember that the evident nature of sexual morality is that everyone struggles with it to some extent, whether you want to, there, you should, there should be a battle. It should be a fight. And any parent that says, Oh, my, my son, my daughter never struggles with that at all ever. Well, you're going against the very idea of scripture. The point of the Bible is to say it is a battle. And the person who sticks their head in the sand is just ignoring the reality of what God's word says. So know this parents, that your children in this day and age is struggling with sexual morality. You're either going to meet it head on and say, let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. Or you're going to hide and say, it's not truly a struggle. The word for sexuality, uh, uh, sexual morality right here in the Greek is the word pornea. And obviously that word sounds familiar to many of us. It's, the word where we get the word porno, uh, pornography. And in our day, um, it includes pornography, but much more. That's what Paul's intended. It's not just pornography. It's so much more than that. You might think that Paul would have no clue about sexual morality because he was a single man. And, but you, you have to go back to what C.S. Lewis's point is. If you try to remain pure as a single man, you're going to actually be battling more against sin, not less. Same with Jesus, same with um, the apostles. The more you try to fight against sin and remain uh, honest, pure, gracious, merciful is the more you're going to be fighting, you're going to be battling. It's also important to note that when we think of sexual morality in Paul's day versus ours, it's so easy to think that, wow, we are facing the worst of times when it comes to sexual morality. But Paul, he must have lived in a pretty good day. That is, again, to quote C.S. Lewis one more time, that's chronological snobbery. That's the idea that we live in the worst time ever, and it's never been as bad as this. Paul would uh, venture to differ with you. He would say his was a pretty bad time. After all, in Paul's day, there were people who had met in Colosseums to watch Christians having their limbs torn apart. So before we think, wow, violence is so bad, things are so terrible, don't forget that they used to throw out infants into the trash heap because they were inconvenient. It was a very, very, very dark time where the church stood and began. Uh, William Barclay is a biblical commentator. He says this about Paul's day in Rome. The sexual life of the Greco-Roman times and New Testament times was a lawless chaos. He lives in a world in which sin, in which such sin was rampant. And in that world, Christianity brought men an almost miraculous power to live in purity. See, William barclays he's relatively present day. It lived in a time where there is pornography and all these things. And his point is, for Paul to remain and the Christians there to remain sexually pure took miraculous power. It was very difficult because in Paul's day, it was so normative, much more than even ours, or at least on, the, on par with ours, to actually remain sexually pure and think of that as something that is uh, God-honoring. That just didn't happen amongst Paul's day, amongst the people. And remember also how small the church was, how little there was preaching and teaching. And the church has been formed at this time. So, lest we, again, with this chronological snobbery, always think our time is the worst time. We're facing such terrible things in our school system, in our society, and culture, and technology, and our world. It, it really does a, a poor um, justice to someone like Paul, and ultimately to the Lord, who is sovereign over history. And there is no time that God is not powerful over. I have no idea what it was like pre-flood, but we know according to Genesis chapter six, that it was so terrible that God said, there's not a single righteous person other than Noah. And so therefore I'm going to destroy the whole world. That unrighteousness and Paul's, uh, Moses lays it out has in some respect to do with sexuality because of the relationship between the the sons of God and the daughters of men. So it's, it's a, something was happening there again we need to recognize that we're not living in a new day but a continuation of the reality of sin in our world so it does take miraculous power to overcome the sin but praise God that it is possible to have this miraculous power that's the whole point of this text that you can battle sin you can fight against sexual sexual morality And also know that if you are battling it and fighting it, praise God, that shows you're a Christian. If you're not fighting it, if you're just giving into it, it it probably shows you're not a believer of Christ. But if it's hard, and there are even times where you stumble and fall, but you don't just simply lay there and say, I give up, but you get back and say, I will fight again. I will press on. We don't give into our flesh. Apart from Christ, we're slaves to sin. And when we don't have Christ, why wouldn't we look and glare and gaze and click and point and have affairs and do all these things? What keeps us from doing that? It is Christ and Christ alone. It is this covenant that we have knowing that he is the one who is Lord. Now, the challenge, I think, is that we, we know that sin has real implications in every way impacts us physically spiritually emotionally relationally and when we turn against the lord there is a physical biochemical change in us that's just how god created us to be we're united and united in being we're not uh, platonic like plato teaches and so therefore when it comes to pornographic images There is an actual rewiring of your brain. William Struthers wrote a book called Wired for Intimacy, does a really good job of studying this idea of seeing the biochemical changes that happen and take place when a person looks at a pornographic image. That doesn't mean that that's impossible to overcome. But like any drug or any addiction, alcoholic, gambling, whatever it might be, there's biochemical changes. Those changes have to be overcome, and they can be. It ultimately takes a spiritual work, but that spiritual work sometimes requires physical action. An addict, a drug addict, needs to go through rehab. They need to be pulled out of the, the system of and go through a withdrawal process. That withdrawal process has real physiological issues. So to por, uh, someone who's addicted to pornography, that they are undergoing biological changes that are shaping the way they view the world life themselves other people and unless there is a breaking of that they're going to continue that pattern over and over again that breaking though has real difficulty it has real challenges and it is important for us as believers of christ who are walking alongside such a person to first recognize that yes, they are a sinner, definitely, like us. But like any sinner walking alongside another sinner, we show grace, mercy, we're with them, we struggle with them, we walk alongside with them. It takes patience, it's heartache. Yesterday when we were in the city with City Impact, um, just walk around and you see people shooting up just right next to us and it, it, It's not going to simply take um, just saying Jesus loves you and then walking away. It's going to take a long slog, a journey, of helping someone break these cycles of physical addiction. But it's not physical addiction that's fundamental, it's spiritual addiction. That spiritual addiction to sin reveals itself, as Paul is describing, with physical addictions. And that physical addiction has real impact physiologically And it has to now be dealt with spiritually, physiologically, relationally, and all of that coming together. William Struthers says this, men seem to be wired in such a way that pornography hijacks the proper functioning of their brains and has a long lasting effect on their thoughts and lives. It is destroying people, marriages, children, fatherhood, churches, leadership, and our culture doesn't help at all. It's just going alongside with this. This past week, there was an article in the New York Times on, on uh, sex education and this woman who got fired as a teacher. The New York Times Twitter feed on July 7th was, quote, was commenting on this woman being fired and wrote this, pornography, pornography literacy classes are supposed to teach students how to critically assess what they see on the screen. But when a sex positive educator taught her curriculum at two elite New York City schools, recently some parents were outraged. Now listen to that, pornography pornography literacy classes are supposed to teach students how to critically assess what they see on the screen. Pornography literacy classes. That's a very interesting way to describe, let's, let's help our kids deal with their sexuality by teaching them how to interpret pornography and study it and examine it. And we're not talking biblically, we're talking let's get in there and actually interact with it. Media and education is now pushing to indoctrinate your children to have a dead-end conscience when it comes to sexuality. And it should not come as a shock to us when more and more children are turning to homosexuality and transgenderism as well as any sexuality outside of marriage if we're not regularly countering that indoctrination. So if your thinking is, I'm just going to send my kids to school and there's not going to be a counteracting agent to that in your discipleship, in your processing, and if you're afraid of what's being learned and your instinct is, I just want to not even talk about it. Because if I just hide my head in the sand, it'll go away. No, it doesn't. That just becomes now the foundations upon which they view the anthropology of humanity man, woman, gender, sexuality. And unless you are discipling, showing your children what it means to be a child of God, that their identity is in Christ alone, not in themselves and fitting in with the world and its structures. If we don't do that, then we will see our hearts and our children's hearts being seared in their consciences. There is also no ministry, no children's ministry, no youth ministry that meets once or twice a week on a few days for a few hours that's going to counteract that more than you, mom and dad. You are the primary front line of helping your children to process through and counteract what they're experiencing in their world, in their, church, uh, in their schools. And if you're not doing that, they will believe that as what is to be true. Parents, you are at the battle front of your children's conscience. And as much as you have been protecting your kids from COVID, you have a much more evil virus than sars cov You have sin and the devil. And they are not out there to kill their bodies. They're out there to kill their souls and your soul. And unless you are standing in that gap, you're placing your children's lives at a far greater risk than sending your kids to school without a mask or without a vaccine or whatever. Your children's lives are at stake. Let us not be simply afraid of COVID. Let us be afraid of the one who can kill not just the body, but the soul. More and more, we are seeing this slow deadening of the conscience when it comes to sexuality. There's a public teaching and flaunting of sexuality, which has been a really long standing human tradition. Since Paul's day, there's always going to be this. Again, do not think it is worse than it ever has been. No, it's been this way from post sin and garden to the end of the days. It's going to be like this. But the gospel is the means by which we can overcome this. We can overcome it. But it takes us battling and fighting and being prepared and intentional. This past week, we had, a, on Friday, we had an Axis movie here and we were watching a Marvel movie. And I don't know if the kids the students noticed this at all but I held the remote in my hand um, I happened to be here so I was just running things and I held the remote in my hand and there were a couple of times where I was just about close to fast forward a scene but I was just wondering I was just thinking I wonder if I fast forward if people would be upset no no don't. I'm not gonna miss out on the scene I don't want to miss that how many parents do you let your kids you, you say hey Watch this movie. Or turn on something, but your remote is far from you. And so scenes come on, sex scenes and all these things, and you just sort of feel a little awkward. It's like, oh, my kids are watching this, but oh well. And you keep on going, it's too late now. It does, I can't do anything about it. Or do we fast forward? Are we ready? And even if our kids say, but I missed that. I don't know what happened in the plot. I'm lost. It's OK. <laughs> You know, there are some things more important than actually this small little plot. If we are inactive in that area, we're giving up. We're not battling. We're not fighting. Seared conscience. The more that happens over time, you might say, well, that's just once, that's twice. But 20 years worth, 24 years worth, eventually your heart grows harder to it. It doesn't seem that bad. And slowly but surely, that scene doesn't seem as bad as you thought it was. So recognize that the fight, and that's just one example of many is it's so much about our hearts. What do our hearts want? What are we thinking about the power of the struggle? Also, the King James translates this word pornea as fornication. Fornication is basically sex outside of marriage. And why does God care so much about sex outside of marriage? Because for God, sex is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality, two becoming one flesh, reserved and designed by God for the covenant of marriage according to Genesis 2:24. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6:16 6, through 17, Paul says this, or do you know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. In the Corinthian church, in chapter 5, there was a really terrible sexual sin. This man was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and they were living together. The worst part of that, so that's a really bad thing, right? I mean, I think we could all say, oh, that's terrible. But here's the problem why Paul is addressing it in a whole chapter in chapter 5, is that no one in the church is saying anything about it. It's normative. It's actually regular. Maybe that's just part of how society acted in their day. Incest was not not that much of a taboo. And so Paul is looking at the culture and saying, the culture's acting this way, but the the tragic part of it all is that the church is acting this way, and it doesn't see a problem with it. And so Paul says, you have to deal with this sin. It will destroy the church. Now he moves on to chapter 6. In chapter 6, men were going to have sex with prostitutes on a regular basis in the church. This was a regular part of the world that Paul lived in, and the church was dealing with that. Could you imagine that type of, I know we don't want to imagine it, that type of normative behavior in the church amongst Christians? So there's this contradiction, and Paul's trying to address that in his day. And his point is to say that When you sin, it's not just against your body, because what they were doing is living in a very Greek way. It's platonic. The physical and the spiritual are absolutely separated by this great, vast dividing wall. And what you did physically didn't impact what you were like spiritually. And so Paul's point was to say, that's not true. The body, when you sin against the body with your body, you're becoming one flesh. You're joining, and that impacts your spirit, because the Lord who is indwelling in you by his spirit, the, the two cannot come together. That's a, a direct contradiction of who God is. So to unite yourself sexually with one another directly impacts your soul because God designed it to be that way. And anyone who has a marriage that has grown in, in love and in delight in being faithful to this covenant, as the years go by, What is amazing about that is that that marriage finds more delight and joy emotionally, spiritually, but yes, even physically, even in sexual intimacy, that they're all combined together. And God designed it that way because his point is to say, you think that having sex outside of marriage is actually the most pleasurable experience you can have, but you are selling yourself short, just like every sin does. It always leaves us wanting. It feels great for a moment, but that moment is fleeting. God doesn't promise moments. He promises us an an eternity. And his eternity is to say, I will satisfy you. I will bring you delight. I will be your pleasure. I will be your joy, but you have to trust me. Trust my plan. Don't just have this relationship outside of uh, this beautiful contract that I have given you as a design plan for humanity to enjoy everlasting pleasure. So it's an unmatched joy to trust in God and his design. So friends, this is why if you're dating or engaged, it does matter whether you remain sexually pure or not. If you're thinking to yourself, what is that line that I can, can I kiss? Can we touch, can we hug, can we do all these things? If we're already thinking that way, we all know the slide towards sexual morality is very steep. It's it's a very, very, it happens quickly. You might be thinking, well, I'm, if you're engaged, and I know many married, engaged couples who think, I'm already engaged, why can't we just consummate this sexual this relationship sexually? Well, first of all, You don't know if until, and I've seen, engaged couples break up. So until you say, I do, you're not married. That relationship can end, and then you are having a sexual relationship with someone who is not your husband or your wife. Secondly is that God has designed marriage to reflect Jesus' love for his bride, the church. Or if you're single, you might think, well, I don't get to experience sex. Then if I don't get married, I should... At least try to engage in some way i tell you that sexual intimacy outside of marriage is such a limited temporary pleasure it truly doesn't last but paul's whole point in ephesians ephesians 5 is to say that the glory of of marriage is but a reflection the true picture is not marriage itself it's our relationship to christ and you can enjoy far greater joy and I know it's hard to imagine this, but it's true. According to God's word, you can experience far greater joy in Christ than you ever would in marriage um, because marriage is but a reflection of that. And as a single person, you don't have a lesser experience of that pleasure. No, you have the ultimate in Christ. To settle for anything outside of marriage is actually to limit your pleasure and your joy. One thing I do know is that Jesus found the greatest pleasure possible as a single man, humanly speaking, in this world, according to Hebrews, by enduring the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, joy is not linked to what we think of as pleasure and happiness. That ultimate Utmost joy can be found in something other than sex. We Christians. Are not pleasure killers, according to John Piper, and I agree with him totally. We are pleasure seekers. We are hedonists. We we want the most pleasure possible. That's what Christians are. We are not joy killers and we're not pleasure killers. We don't try to poo poo pleasure. We love pleasure. We love joy. We just want the most possible ever. And so we agree with David when he says in Psalm 1611, you, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. You know You're going to see that when you trust in Christ, when he becomes your greatest delight, you will find your greatest joy. And he is worth the fight. He is worth the fight of your life. The fight of your life is inside your heart, with your eyes, your mind. You're you're fighting for eternal pleasure, not instant pleasure that is temporary. Lesser joy, lesser pleasure. This fight is against your own biochemistry, against your own hormones. It's also against an enemy who is out there to say, did God really say or just take it? Everyone else is doing it. Don't be a prude. It's the fight of your life. Are you ready for it? Do you want the greatest joy ever, the greatest pleasure ever? Fight, 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 fight. Paul also describes the fight against impurity, sexual looseness, that is. Sensuality, the desire to want to be sexual, to express that towards others. It, it's sort of this light-hearted attitude towards sexuality, to think it's no big deal. Out, sex outside of marriage, it's, it's the sign of the times. And it means that we actually are mindful of what we watch, what we read, the images we look at. We're mindful of our dress and how we dress and how we act, what we say. When we think about sex and sexuality, we don't just laugh it off as a joke. That's sensuality. That person is literally like the oxen that is being led to slaughter in Proverbs. We don't even fight when we have that attitude. We're just led to the slaughterhouse because all the oxen are going to the slaughterhouse. What's in there, it must be good because everybody's going there, but it's a slaughterhouse. Get ready, because if you start battling the flesh, then you're going to think about, well, should I dress this way? Because maybe my number one reason is, I just want to look sexy for others, whether we actually believe it or not. But in our heart of hearts, deep down, we want to look a certain way for the opposite sex. We want that that sense of people saying, wow, you're attractive. And that's a secret. It's a secret in our hearts. Or maybe guarding our hearts against being flirtatious with others, even unintentionally, perhaps not responding to someone at work who seems to be interested in something more than work. And they're just sending you some texts and emails. And you're having a rough time with your spouse. But they're just being a friend. They're being kind and considerate. And it just makes me feel good for a change, unlike my spouse, who just always makes me feel lesser. The struggle is not against flesh and blood, because when you take on this struggle, you're going to be accused of as being prudish, a party pooper, out of touch, legalistic, anachronistic. You're going to be thought of as someone who is uncool, The struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And impurity and sensuality, it's embedded into our culture. It is. But it's embedded in more ways than we think. Because here's the thing. Are we upset with gay pride parades and the flaunting of gay sexuality? But when we go to the clothing sections of stores, our seared conscience doesn't see the contradiction of flaunting our own bodies towards people of the opposite gender. We might say, oh, homosexuality is so evil, but as long as I just seduce people heterosexually, then that's okay. There's that impurity and sensuality is there regardless of whether you believe in homosexuality as a sin or not. Are we shocked by the story of the so-called transgender man who went into WeSpa in L.A. a couple of weeks ago But then we have no problem glaring at a sex scene in a movie because it's just part of the movie. It's artistic license. Have we succumbed so much to to pornography, sex outside of marriage, that we just stop battling. It's too hard. We've given up. I'm just gonna let myself go because I I can't hold back anymore. And it's just too hard for me to do it. As I shared earlier, Paul's time was a time where anything and everything goes when it comes to sexual morality. Paul was not oblivious to this, or he certainly wouldn't have put this at the top of his list. But being a single man, he faced his own temptations, and he refused to allow the sexual human approach of his day to win the day. The church, the gospel, would be the answer. Can you imagine that Paul wrestling with these issues, incest, and these men who are having sex with prostitutes in the church, both happening in the church, in the very beginnings of the church. And the church is still around today because the gospel does not change. It is still the same hope. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Porneia has been defeated. Death has lost its sting. It's not just death, but it's all things death, including porneia. We need not be deathly afraid for our children. Be aware, disciple them, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't be afraid of what's out there. The gospel is more powerful. I want to close with this. Remember Paul's, uh, David's words in Psalm 1611 about the fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. Look at the previous verses in verses 9 and 10 therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices my flesh flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your holy one see corruption this is right before pleasures evermore those last two lines they're quoted by both peter and paul the preaching of the gospel it's referring to christ That is to say that because God sent his son and would save us through Christ, that he would not abandon the Messiah. He would not let his Holy One see corruption. He would be raised again. Death would lose its thing. Where there's death, there's always resurrection in God's economy, in God's world. And so for Paul and Peter, it's not that let's be afraid of porneia. Let's look at it and say, oh, woe is us. The, the world and its culture is so bad and transgenderism has won and homosexuality is so evil and all these things. It's so easy to get caught up and think that that's what is the answer, is fight that. No, we don't battle by fighting those things in government halls and politics. It just doesn't work. It never will, according to God's plan. It doesn't. The battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is the one who has already won. He's won. He's won the day. Sexual morality will not remain. Christ has been raised from the grave. And though our sins were once as scarlet, are now as white as snow. Even if you have embedded in your brain the most horrific, graphic, diabolical images of that you have seen, or perhaps you have had an experience sexually outside of marriage and you think, can God really love me? And the answer is yes. There's a song we sang, the first song, you know, at the cross. It says, righteous now he looks at me. Righteous now. He does. If you are in Christ and you've had a sexual relationship outside of marriage, if you have done something that you think, there's no way God could love me, or you're right now so imprisoned by pornography and you think, I can't break free. Righteous now he looks at you because of Christ his son. When Jesus died that death, do you think that was an easy thing? Never think that that death was something that was, that can't overcome pornography or sexually explicit, Affair, adultery, immorality. No, you can be as white as snow in Christ. But keep fighting. God has won through Christ. He's won. So I don't want you to leave thinking, oh, that was a, whoa, that, that message was a little bit overwhelming there. It shouldn't be. Instead, it should be victorious. Jesus, you've won the day on that cross. I can be free and I will never stop fighting till the day that I die so that I will be welcomed as a good and faithful servant. Today we are going to respond with communion. The blood that was shed for us is what we are saying. Jesus, this is our power. This is our strength. When you come and take and drink the wine or the grape juice, you eat the bread, You say, Lord, there is no hope for me by my own willpower. I can't by my own willpower and accountability methods and all these things, in and of itself, it won't save me. It is this, Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we praise you. Your love is steadfast and true. You have raised your own son so that the Holy One would not see decay. He would not see decay But he would bear our decay, the the darkness of our souls. Our minds, perhaps, have been cluttered with horrific things. We have sinned against you by sinning with our bodies. But we have a hope that is in Christ alone, who bore our sins on his body. So that as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, that, we can be welcomed home, that Christ Jesus cleanses us, purifies us, and will present to us, the church, as pure and spotless before the Father. That those of us perhaps who think, well, I have already gone way too far. There's no hope for me. In Christ Jesus, there's always hope. There's the resurrection. And we stand Righteous, declared righteous, what good news. Thank you for the bloodshed, for the broken body that took our place. And now, today, we have new life forever in Jesus. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.